Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Cracking Addiction. And once again, we have with us the good Mr. Stephen Hurd. Hello, Stephen. How are you? Yeah, I'm really well, Fergal. How are you today? I'm pretty good. So I thought today we'd continue our discussion on family violence by talking about the the evidence-based risk factors for lethality. Can you tell us what that concept is before we start delving down into those individual risk factors? Yeah, yeah. I guess uh, over the over the decades, there's there's been a lot of uh, emphasis put on is there is, are there a common set of characteristics that uh, we can identify in research uh, that give us some indication that um, a partner, a male partner, may kill or nearly kill his um, his female partner. Mm. And over the years, as we know, um, a uh, the the prevalence of of uh, homicide, um, intimate partner homicide. Uh, there's about one woman who's killed per week by her current or former partner. And there's a growing evidence base as to the trajectories of those relationships and how they mm. turn out and the factors associated with them. Yeah. And up until uh, about 2010, 2013 or so, there was a set of factors that were developed, identified uh, and consolidated into what was called the Common Risk Assessment Framework. And that was uh, yeah, about 2010. Mm -hmm. um, and they identified a range of factors that they were able to say were either a, a high risk factor for lethality, lethality or a standard risk factor. Mm. With the advent of MARAM uh, since um, 2016, that list has uh, been added to with uh, a few more. A few more in terms of uh, the children's experience in particular and a few and a couple of other situational type factors so what that means is if we identify some of these factors in a victim's story in their experience with family violence from their partner then each of those factors um, uh, accumulate and increase the what we would say there's the risk that uh, she could be killed or, or nearly killed does that sort of give a reasonable Yeah, background? it does. I think, and I suppose the discussion also brings into sharp relief the idea that actually, you know, more than one woman a week in Australia is killed by a current or former partner. And that is, that in itself is a shocking statistic. Um, and I suppose really it also highlights the relevance of what we're, what we're talking about. So this is an issue that should affect everyone in society. You know, we should all be aware of this, this, this basic truth. Um, and I suppose all, this, this is a useful segue into, you know, what are those risk factors? Uh, you know, so I have a, a list in my head of, of, of what I think the, the, the high lethality factors are. I suppose we can go through each one and we can talk about them but firstly uh, you know for me one of the most important ones is a pattern of escalation of violence what, what would you say to that yeah and that is an identified risk factor and and it's known that um, uh, violence towards women uh, from, from a partner can escalate those elements of control that might that might start off early in a relationship um, the, the, the 
the, the man seems to need to, to use more and more techniques or, or the severity of it to be stronger and stronger in order mm. to um, get the control over his partner. And the partner's probably becoming more au fait with how to manage that over time mm. and uh, is developing their own strategies to counteract it and resist mm. it. And yeah. then that, in a turn, builds on him to to, to uh, express his desire to control her uh, using more significant ways. Um, mm. I guess uh, if we can talk uh, pretty basically uh, around what physical violence might be, you know, physical violence might start off as a slap. You know, innocuous, I guess, as mm. a standalone item, but that can... But the type of physical violence can change. We can all envisage different types of things happening. A slap goes to a punch. A mm. punch goes to a, a significant push, push over mm. a couch. And what's what's being identified as probably uh, the most significant physical risk factor is strangula strangulation. That was second on my list. Right, right. Yeah. And yeah. that, and and you in, in um, me in family violence terms, I, I identify that, and that that is a, um, a really significant high risk factor. But in medical, uh, for family violence, but in medical terms, if if you were to elaborate on what the medical risks are around that, oh, it's huge. So there's a number of things to say about choking. First of all, in my experience, victims of family violence don't ever say that they've been strangled. What the, uh, uh, you know, if you ask the question, has your partner ever tried to strangle you? The answer is invariably no. But what they might say, or what they might answer to the affirmative would be the question, has your partner ever put his hands to your neck? Because they don't identify with the word strangulation. So that's the first point I'd make to that. To that. The next thing to say is the strength of the grip that is required to lose consciousness during during an attack when someone puts their hands around a, a victim's neck, that grip strength is no greater than the grip strength needed for a firm handshake to cause loss of consciousness. Now, the next thing to say beyond that is that it only takes 15 seconds of, of, of strangulation with a, a firm handshake grip strength to lose urinary incontinence, to lose urinary continence, and only 30 seconds to lose uh, fecal continence. And of course, women who, who are the victims of family violence, they, you know, because they've lost consciousness, they, they, first of all, they'll minimize what's happened. So they'll say, yeah, he put his hand around my neck. Then they'll blank out. So they, they lose consciousness. They can't remember. But then they'll, then they'll remember waking up having either wet themselves or soiled themselves. So when I'm asking about this question or when I'm probing about this question, I won't ever, I, I tend not to ask, does your partner strangle you? I ask, have you ever had your partner put his hands around your neck for whatever reason? And have you ever woken up slightly disoriented having wet or soiled yourself? Now, 
that in, a, in, a, in and of itself is a risk factor for lethality, but it's also a risk factor for significant morbidity because you've got to remember the, the structures around the neck are very fragile. So you're, you're squeezing the arteries to the brain, for one. And so you can cause damage to those arteries, and that damage may not be apparent for many months. So really, it can be strangulation in the context of intimate partner violence can actually be a risk factor for stroke. So one of my differentials for someone who presents with a stroke, who's young and female and, and possibly the victim of family violence, is, is strangulation. The other thing to think about is you've got a very fragile gland at the front of your neck, just around the Adam's apple, called your thyroid gland. And if you squeeze your thyroid gland, you'll, you release all of these hormones, you can end up with, with clinical hyperthyroidism, and that can cause problems. And then, of course, you can have structures, you know, or you can damage the cartilage and you can damage the voice box. So there are a number of morbidities, illnesses that can be associated with it, and it's a high risk factor, and it's under-recognized, and it's under underplayed. You know, the significance of it is not really appreciated, both on the part of clinicians and also on the part of victims of family violence. I, I, I've not been aware of the incontinence aspect, mm. and it's a, yeah. and that is uh, observable, obviously, to a mm -hmm. victim. Yeah. Um, perhaps uh, in a shaming sense, it might be mm -hmm. really awkward, difficult to, to talk about. So, so you may not still get an appropriate answer. Hmm. You have to know the questions to ask. And yeah. as I've said before, people don't say, yeah, my wife, my partner tries to strangle me. It's, it's, it's very rare that that actually presents. What, what I have heard, what, what I have heard, and I guess my, my mental picture of strangulation is, I guess we don't yeah. want to focus on this too much, yeah. but, but I, I do have a question, is, is two hands equally around the neck. Um, yeah. But what I probably hear more often, just, just reflecting in, in, in my experiences, is... A statement like he held me up against the uh, the wall. Yeah, it's sort of like more more of a one-handed kind of thing. Yeah. Is it? Yeah. I don't know. Is that? Is there any difference? Well, well, it, I suppose I, I I don't actually think so. I don't think there is a difference. Probably. But if if you're talking about the mechanisms of loss of consciousness, all you need to do is to squeeze one of the arteries, oh. and you'll you'll create loss of consciousness. Yeah. And. and the other thing I do know about the medical response is if uh, if we hear that a, a client has been strangled or, or if she discloses that she has, then uh, if it's within, um, even if it's within a couple of weeks of the incident happening, is to still seek medical advice, go and go to the GP and get checked out. Yeah, certainly so, you'd need you'd need to be um, you'd need to be checked over. There are a number of things that I would worry about, including risk factors for stroke, risk factors for uh, airway, and risk factors for thyroid. Right. So is that yeah. sort of two-week period? Is that a, is well, that a valid time frame? Or is look, I, I, th I think, I don't believe that we should put a limit to it. I think any, any victim of family violence should always seek medical attention at any time. Because I think if you start saying, oh, within the first two weeks, you, then, then that puts a barrier up to actually accessing help at any time. So yeah. that's, I, I wouldn't actually want to put a time frame to it. Fair enough. Fair enough. Mm. So, so that to me, um, that that is a significant risk factor that uh, 
yeah. may or may not be disclosed and 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 you use your and you use methods to ask in indirect ways or get indirect evidence that helps support yeah. that and i guess that that's sort of we'll talk about the risk factors but that sort of helps position what a family violence conversation sort of generally is anyway a lot of the time is asking for indirect evidence and i guess that's what these risk factors sort of point us to as clinicians that ultimately yeah. that ultimately we've we've got about 25 of them mm. uh the vast majority of what we call the high risk factors mm. and then the rest are standard risk factors and so yeah. me as a clinician what i want to do is get uh, get used to that list and then as I hear a story unfold, as I, as I use my normal everyday sort of uh, micro, no, interpersonal micro skills around just listening and reflecting and summarizing and, mm. and uh, validating um, open questions, uh, the, the, the typical interpersonal skills that we learn as counselor types, mm. um, is to build a story and build that set of evidence and and really have those flags go off on our, in the back of our head. You know, uh, I, I guess what used to be called um, red, red flags, that was a mm-hmm. really common phrase through the 2010s, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. you know, we'd hear these red flags. Uh, that's what a clinician might say. And, and that relates to this idea of, um, yeah, we've got these evidence-based risk factors. Um, and, and they're called evidence-based because each of them does have an evidence base around it. Yeah. So they're these are, yeah, these yeah. are very powerful predictors of an elevated risk. That's right. So, so, so there's been research put into it and there's uh, you know, reviewable uh, yeah. relationship correlations around this this factor and, and the outcomes. Let's talk about stalking. That's another evidence-based risk factor for lethality, isn't it? Hmm. It can be mixed up in uh, controlling behaviours, uh, obsessive mm. behaviours. Each, mm. both of those are uh, high risk factors, um, mm. and and the general general category of controlling behaviours is a high risk factor. Mm. And as we've talked about before, the the definition of family violence is, or the purpose of family violence is around power and control, is having control over the other. Mm. So being controlled. Uh, in whatever way, um, and that includes receiving all these text messages. Perhaps it does. Yeah, it includes post-separation when, when, when there might be intervention orders in place, and um, and they're not living together anymore. And the uh, it could include you know, physical stalking, and that's that, that's what I guess we imagine when we hear that word stalking. But there's also but it's a, cyber it, stalking it's a, as well. Yeah, it's important to appreciate the extent of stalking because it's not necessarily standing outside someone's bedroom window at mm. four o'clock in the morning taking photographs uh, of the boy, the new boyfriend's car, you know, a number plate. You know, it, it is a range of behaviors, which does include harassment, harassing, harassing text messages. You know, I've Absolutely. had patients who say they've had you know, 300 text messages a day, you know, I mean, that's... And and yeah, just continual phone calls. Where are you? What are yeah. you doing? Who are you with? Yeah, there may yeah. not be those direct questions, and 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 a victim in that certain uh, circumstance may not identify it as well. Yeah, they might report, "Well, he loves me." Mm. It's attention. Yeah, and he just cares about me. Yeah, and and he tells me I, I can't look after myself, and he's right, mm. and so this is his way of showing his love. So that interpretation is something we 
we, we continue to grapple with mm. and whether it's a real interpretation or what's the, what's the impact of that particular person, that, that woman having that interpretation on her choice around mm. what she's doing. Um, I heard a really interesting um, scenario the other day, first time I've ever heard it. Um, mm. What we might typically see in a session is a female client um, there might be a male partner sitting outside. Now, we interview the, the, um, the client separately. But she might get text messages saying, what are you doing? How long are you going to be? That kind mm. of thing. Know what you're referring to. Mm. Uh, an interesting flip on that I heard the other day was it was a male client. Um, and he exhibited in his known narrative controlling behaviours. But through the session... Well, his partner, female partner, was out in the waiting room. But from what I understand, through the session, which only went for half an hour or so, uh, he left about four times just to go and check up on her. So <laughs> we, we could say he was going out to get support. He was, he was, he was, he was doing something, getting a drink. Um, but there's a, it just tweaked my mind that uh, it could be that reverse sort of. Yeah, he's sign. checking up on her. So. If she's still there, um, I need to. Mm. She can't be in here. I've I've got to go out there. Maybe it's a security thing. I don't know. But mm. but these observations. I guess the point is I'm trying to make is these observations of what we see, how we interpret them, is really important. And developing a strong family violence lens with the backing of the evidence-based risk factors uh, will give us a a really strong uh, knowledge base and clinical base to get a good formulation as to what the risk might be um, for our clients. Mm. Pregnancy. What do you think of pregnancy as a risk factor for family violence? Again, another high one. I think the, the, the technical sort of relationship with pregnancy is if there's been physical violence while pregnant. Mm. So not so much being pregnant, I think in in what I called the, the CRAF earlier, um, mm -hmm. But ten years ago, I think pregnancy was identified as a risk factor. In in the Marin version of the risk factors, it's more associated with the with physical violence during pregnancy. And any sort of rational person would say would be you know, um, really really uh, disturbed that there, there could be physical violence during pregnancy. Mm. Um, and so probably a, a very clear risk factor. And the yeah. whole idea of, of, of the pregnancy and birth, the thinking around that is, well, the female's attention is now going to herself and going to her unborn, unborn child. Mm. And then when it is born, is obviously going towards the, the child itself, which it needs to. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's that disconnect the partner may feel that he's now put on the in the background, he's being shown. Mm. Mm. This child is now taken over. Yeah. So, so that in itself, when we sort of discuss, um, raise that kind of scenario, yeah, sends shivers up my spine. Mm. Um, and so, one of those situational factors of pregnancy, of having a client who's pregnant, uh, really does add add to the potential risk. Yeah, I mean, reflecting also in, in the AOD space, you know, pregnancy really is a, is a is a factor that makes me, you know, 
try and uh, do everything I can to get a patient treatment because, you know, ongoing AOD use or substance use during pregnancies, it harms mum and it harms bub. So really you're, you're trying to, you're, you're having to look after two people. Yeah. So listen, on that sweet note, we've run out of time today. So I want to thank you for your expertise and I would hope that we can continue our conversation in due course. Thank you very much, Steve. Thanks, Fug. Pleasure. That's all for today, folks. My name is Dr. Fergal Armstrong and this has been Cracking Addiction. <laughs>